uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Because today we're going to address the idea of spiritual pride, which comes up often in my life when I am not dependent on him. Last week in Matthew 26, we moved from the Mount of Olives into that upper room uh, to prepare to celebrate the Passover. That Passover is a time of celebration. It's a time of community. It was a time that was designed to bring the Jewish people back in remembrance to where they had been and what God had done. In their bondage, in their slavery, they cried out to him and God heard. Not because they deserve to be rescued, but because he is faithful to his word. And through power and through the plagues, he poured out and he demonstrated exactly who he was to Egypt and to his people. And we come to that tenth and final plague where God's justice and mercy are poured out. He takes the life of the firstborn, but for every house where the blood covers the door, he passes over. That really pointed reminder that a lamb dies in someone's place. And now we fast forward and Christ celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And so much of that is familiar. There's the bread, there's the wine, there's the lamb. But into that situation, Jesus uh, just injects some radical changes. Some shocking things. He says, in this time where they would expect to be at peace and in community with one another, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Not just I'm going to be betrayed, but one of you is going to hand me over. And they're shocked and they're shaken. And they ask, certainly it can't be me. Is it me? Is it me? There's this brokenness that is over them. And he knows not only that he will be betrayed. Of course, he knows exactly who will betray him. And he identifies Judas and either a private way or a quiet way or a way somehow that they still all seem to miss. But then when Judas goes, he moves his men through what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And even those familiar elements now are given new meaning. It's not just unleavened bread reminding them uh, to be separate and reminding them that they left in a hurry. Now it's the very body of Christ. It's not just a cup of wine. Now it's the blood of the Savior, the blood of that new covenant promise, the blood that unlike all the bulls and all the goats from all of the sacrifices under the law, it's that blood that finally cleanses them once and for all. And today we're going to move from the upper room back to the Mount of Olives. As the cross comes closer, the preparations continue, and the preparations have to continue because the disciples are not ready. They think they are. They are convinced that even though they might not understand what is coming, that when whatever is coming comes, they will be able to stand firm, and they drastically underestimate their own weakness. Today we're going to look at the reality and the danger of spiritual pride. And in doing that, we're going to be given the good but uncomfortable opportunity to examine our own hearts and our own pride. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, we're going to read verses 30 to 35. This is what God's word says. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Let's pray. Lord, pride is so easy to see in others. 
so easy to diagnose when it's someone else. But it's such a cunning and consistent enemy in our own lives. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would do what you must do, and that is to open our eyes and open our hearts. We come to this blind, and we come to this hard-hearted. So, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word, as the psalmist writes. We ask that through the grace of your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, remind us that we do not bring anything of eternal significance to the table that we are wholly and completely dependent on you. And Lord, in light of that, make us not only humble, but joyful, grateful, knowing that you have done what we couldn't, that you have called sinners to be sons and daughters of the King. What an amazing God we worship. And so we praise you. We ask you to be with us in our study. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We had VBS here a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that we do during that time is we allow the kids to either write down or pass through their leaders uh, questions to ask a pastor. And then at a couple points in the day, I go through and I answer some of their questions. And some of them are fun, like how do you get the flags not to fall down in the sanctuary? Um, They were fluttering, but there was no wind and they were amazed. A lot of them have to do with dinosaurs. And um, a number of them this year... I actually dealt with Satan. I wasn't sure maybe it was something that came up uh, the first day in the Bible time, but uh, they had a lot of questions about Satan, who he was, where he came from, uh, was he dangerous, was he in hell, how, how does that work? And it gave us a great opportunity, not only to talk about Satan, but to talk about God, to, to first of all understand how God is different from everything else. We talked about Psalm 90 and how from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. As far back that way as you go, he is God and always has been God. And as far forward into the future this way that you go, he is God and always has been God. And how that's not true of Satan. Satan is not from everlasting to everlasting. He was a created being. He was an angel. He saw the presence of God. He saw the glory of God. He participated in the worship of God. But at some point, he decided that he wanted that for himself. And in his pride, he wanted to be equal with God. And he fell. So pride is an ancient sin. Pride is obviously a serious sin, but pride we know isn't a sin that's exclusive to angelic beings. We all struggle with pride in one sense or another. Like I said, pride is easy to diagnose in other people, isn't it? We can point to TV characters with pride as their main folly. We can point to other people and say that is pride that exhibits itself in their life. But when it comes to me, Pride is a lot harder to define and to diagnose because I am so good at justifying what I do. So good at rationalizing how I respond to things. And so today's an opportunity to have some uncomfortable things kind of brought out into the open and laid bare as we look at the peril, the danger of spiritual pride. And we're going to begin by looking at a promise that Jesus makes. We've seen Jesus make a number of promises in the Gospel of Matthew, and a number of them are very, very good things. But we're going to open this up and we're going to look first at the promise, and it's not maybe the kind of promise that the disciples were looking for. And verse 30 opens by moving them toward a familiar place. Look at what it says. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Remember, they're in the city, in an upper room, in Jerusalem, celebrating the Passover. You had to celebrate the Passover within the city, within the place that God said you had to celebrate it. You did certain things. You moved through the evening in a certain way, and you did that at a certain place. And Jerusalem was at that place. And and now, as the cross is drawing closer and closer, they are moving out of the city 
across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and it's going to be a very familiar place. They've crossed this path many times. They've been going back and forth to Bethany every day. This would have been very near that. And so much has happened over the last several hours here. I mean, over the last several hours, they've moved into that upper room. Jesus has washed their feet. Um, he has identified Judas. Judas has left, and at this point, he hasn't come back. Jesus has instituted from the Passover now to the Lord's Supper with those new meanings behind the elements. Jesus has told them again that he's going to die. Jesus has talked to them about this helper that he is going to send to them, someone to remind them of all truth, someone to convict them in the world, someone to help them in their ministry. So there's got to be a lot going on in their minds. And now they're going back along this familiar path and toward a very familiar place. Uh, John's Gospel tells us that the garden that they're going to, this Garden of Gethsemane, is a place where Jesus would frequently meet with his disciples. And so once again, remember in the back of your mind that Judas is looking for a convenient place, a private place, a quiet place, to betray the Messiah, and he is leading his men right to that very place. Now, along that familiar path, the disciples, either at that point or sometime in the very close context, have had a very particular discussion. And it doesn't come out in Matthew's Gospel. It comes out in Luke chapter 22. And again, I said last week, it's kind of difficult to put a specific uh, timeline in order. And it's not because the gospel writers can't figure it out. It's because they all highlight different things at different points. They move thematically. They make arguments. They drive a particular theme at a particular time. But at some point that evening, in Luke 22, uh, right after the institution of the Lord's Supper, in Luke 22, 24, he says this, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Right after the Lord's Supper... The disciples decide to have a discussion and a debate amongst themselves about which one of them ought to be considered the greatest of the disciples. And Jesus responds and he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called their benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become like the youngest, the leader like one who serves. For who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. He's washed their feet. He's told them about his death and betrayal. He's led them through that drastic change of the Passover celebration. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. Uh, The greatest among them has just told them that he is the one who is the greatest. And yet he's among them as the one who served. But those truths are so slow to sink in. And we should be able to relate to that. The world's idea of greatness is deeply ingrained in who we are as people. The world says that greatness is money and its position and its influence and its power, and we have a hard time breaking from that, and the disciples certainly did. And so at this point, they're still struggling with that concept, and whether it's on that walk or just before that walk, in the immediate context of where we're going, the disciples' main concern is not what is coming. The disciples' main concern and focus is who among them is the greatest. And we have to understand that because it really provides this shocking contrast to what Jesus says next. Because as they walk along that familiar path, Jesus is going to predict their failure. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. They're concerned with rank and recognition. And Jesus says, men, you are all going to fall away. Not a few of you. Not the weakest of you, not the least among you, not the less deserving of you, but all of you are going to fall away because of me. 
And if you're paying attention, then maybe in your mind you're kind of driven back just a few verses where Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and they're shocked. Uh, they're shaken. And they say one by one, Jesus, surely it's not me, is it? it? It can't be me. And we might assume now that with Judas gone, now the bad seed is kind of out of the way, now maybe the good, strong, righteous disciples and Jesus can really get down to work. In the hours before the cross, now that Judas is gone, everything else is going to go along just fine. But instead, what do we see? We see a bunch of nobodies arguing over which one of them is the most notable of the nobodies. And now we see this sad announcement that even though Judas is gone, there is not one of them standing there that is not going to experience tremendous failure and falling away. And again, that that should jar us. It's not very far from communion and the beauty of being called to eat His body and drink His blood and the fellowship that that brings with Christ Himself to being told that they will deny Him. It is not a huge step from arguing about who is the greatest to denying Christ altogether. But even in the middle of that promise of failure, there's this really beautiful reminder of God's faithfulness. God's promised faithfulness. It says you'll all fall away. You think you're strong, but you're weak. You'll think you're standing, but you're going to fall. You say that you're able to drink the cup that I drink, but you can't even fathom what is coming. But He knows. And he knows that in part because Jesus knows the Scripture. He says, you'll all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He says, for it is written, and we've seen that over and over in Matthew's Gospel, that that's kind of the formula that he uses to introduce an Old Testament quotation. This one's not very familiar to us, or at least most of us. It's from Zechariah chapter 13. And in Zechariah 13, the prophet is writing about the failed shepherds of Israel, the ones who were supposed to guard and guide God's people as they went from king to king and high priest to high priest as they were moved through the centuries. The, the leaders were supposed to care for the people, but they had utterly failed. And in Zechariah 13, God is pronouncing judgment on their failed shepherds. He says, I'm going to remove them. I'm going to judge them. But then right in the middle of that, he says some odd things. In, in Zechariah 13, verse 7, he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd so that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. You would think that he's talking about striking the bad shepherd and scattering the bad sheep, but that's not what he says. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Those bad shepherds were not Yahweh's shepherds. But this one isn't against my associate, or literally the, the man joined with me, the man equal to me. And so there's some really clear kind of messianic implications there. This one who is called the shepherd of Yahweh, this one who is set by the side or seen as equal with God. But that one, for some reason, is struck. The false prophets are going to be struck down, but in that same context, this one who is called my shepherd by God will also be struck down. And Matthew's gospel makes it emphatic. He says, I will strike the shepherd. And that is such a critical thing to understand. Who is it that is going to strike the shepherd? Who is the I in that situation? It's the Lord. And we're reminded once again that this is all working out according to God's purpose. Wh whose idea was it to kill Jesus? Was it Judas? Was it the religious leaders? Was it the people? Was it Pilate? Was it Satan? Certainly they all hated Christ. 
But what we see over and over in the Bible is that it is God who will strike the one who he has set as a substitute. Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd. We could go to Isaiah 53, that the Lord is the one who caused our iniquity to fall on him. That the Lord was pleased to crush him. Men might hate him and Satan might rage against him, but they are all powerless to actually touch Christ. In John chapter 10, oddly enough, a place where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, in contrast with all those bad shepherds. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Christ alone had the authority to lay down and to take up his life. So God will strike the shepherd, and when he does that, what happens to the sheep? Prophetically, it says the sheep will be scattered. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. And we are reminded that even their failure is not a surprise to God. Even their failure is not a surprise to Christ who called them to be his disciples in the first place. This was written hundreds of years before they breathed their first breath. And we're reminded that God's word stands even in the midst of human failure. And as we move to verse 32, there's actually two more really great promises in verse 32. Look at how it starts. But after I am raised up, and there's promise number one. See, striking the shepherd isn't the end of the story. Striking the shepherd is not the last word in the ministry of the shepherd. From back in Matthew chapter 16, we have been told over and over, I am going to Jerusalem and I am going to die. But every time Christ speaks of his coming death and betrayal, he also tells them about his resurrection. I am going to die, but I am going to be raised up again. The shepherd is going to be stricken, but he is not going to remain stricken. That's the first promise, but what's the second promise? Look at the rest of verse 32. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And you say, great, a promise of Jesus in Galilee. Who cares? (laughs) That's not the promise I'm talking about. Who else is going to Galilee? He says, you're all going to fall away. Each one of you is going to abandon me. But when you do, when you run, when you abandon Christ, and you will, this is the remarkable thing, he's not done with them. He doesn't say, I'm going to go to Galilee, I'm going to start this whole thing over with guys who actually get it. Because quite frankly, I'm done with all of you people. He doesn't say, I'm going to bring together a group that's smarter, a group that's stronger, a group that's more committed. He says, after you all flee, and after I'm stricken, and after I am raised up again, just as I've told you, you're going to be in Galilee with me. It's a really beautiful thing that the end of Matthew closes with Jesus giving these same men the great commission to go into all the world and to make disciples. Those who scattered out of fear of death are gathered together and sent out into the world. And even though it will cost them their life, at that point they will never again flee from the task before them. Some really beautiful things there. And as you might expect, the disciples miss it completely. (laughs) Because Jesus saying that probably should have quieted everybody down for a bit. That should have been a sobering thing to hear and to process. Maybe we would think that they would be drawn back to where they were in that upper room when they hear that one of you is going to betray. Maybe they come back to that place where they're shaken and they say, I'm going to fall away? Lord, surely not me. 
Are you sure? It can't be that I would fall away, but that's not what we see. Instead of sadness or contemplation, uh, immediately we see a protest. Well, from this promise of Christ to this protest on the part of the disciples. And once again, as we've seen again over and over in Matthew's Gospel, if someone's going to speak up, it's going to be Peter. And Peter speaks up on the behalf of all of them about what they are thinking. And he is the most vocal about correcting Jesus. And in verse 33, Peter decides that he's going to make a promise of his own. Look at verse 33. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That is a bold statement. That is a dangerous statement. Because essentially, what is he saying? Jesus, you're wrong. Look, I know who you are. I know where you come from. I know that you alone speak the words of eternal life. I've heard you interpret the very heart of the law. I've seen you heal and calm the storm. But Jesus, this time, you simply missed it. Maybe you misread the scriptures. Maybe you underestimate me. And that's what he's saying to all of this. It's not a good place to be. And when you start pulling apart what he says, it doesn't get any more flattering. Though they all fall away because of you. Who's he talking about? The other disciples. He is standing right in front of them and he essentially points the finger and he says, I can see all of those guys doing exactly what you just said. None of these guys are as strong as me. I mean, Thomas? <laughs> Doubtful. Bartholomew? Thaddeus? No one's even going to remember them. But Jesus, this is me. This is Peter. I am not like them somehow. Even if all of them fall away, I will never fall away. There is something about me, Jesus, that is categorically different than all of these other men. I'm better. I'm stronger. I am made of some different spiritual stuff than they are. And you might talk about failure and I can see that they might do that. But Jesus, not me. Peter's faith was firm, but Peter's faith was firmly placed in Peter. That is dangerous ground to stand on. And Jesus responds to that not simply with a correction, but with an even more specific prediction. Look at what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, Now, if you've been paying attention to Matthew's gospel, that whole truly I tell you thing is a pretty serious introduction. Jesus says, truly I tell you, when he needs to get people's attention so they pay attention to what he is saying. Truly I tell you, not one jot, not one tittle, not one iota, not one piece of the law is going to pass away until all of it has come to pass. Truly I tell you, it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it is for those cities in Galilee who rejected me. Truly I tell you, there is no one greater born among men than John the Baptist. Peter, pay attention. Listen up. Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. This very night. Peter, your boasting is not even going to make it through the night. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Your arrogance isn't even going to survive until sunrise. You are going to prove to be no different than the others. More than that, Luke's gospel says that before the rooster crows, you will have denied three times that you know me. Peter, not only are you going to fall away. Peter, not only are you going to run. Peter, you're going to say you don't even know me. You're not going to do it once. You're going to do it three times. Now at this point, 
you would hope that even Peter runs out of things to say. But Peter does what many of us do when we are confronted in our pride. We don't stop and actually take stock of what is happening. We don't receive the correction. Peter does what many of us do, and that is he doubles down. Uh, Instead of changing his position, he just raises his voice and ups the ante. Look at verse 35. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I'm with you to the grave, Jesus. Maybe only you and me, but at least you and me. Now most of us know what happens. By the end of Matthew 26, a rooster crows and Peter denies Jesus three times, exactly as he said. We'll see all that play out in a few weeks when we get there. But at this point, Peter is clinging to his arrogance and to his pride. And by this point, the other disciples join in. All the disciples said the same thing. Yeah, me too, Jesus. I will never deny you. Jesus, you've got it wrong. We are all with you to the better end. Even if we have to die with you, we are with you. Why do they go there? Because if you are going to argue about who is the greatest, you are not going to be the one that says, maybe I will fall away. If you have staked your reputation on being the most disciple disciple, then you are not going to let one of these other guys have more confidence in you than you can stick with Christ. And so you have this scene here presented where Jesus, in what I can only imagine in my sanctified imagination, would be a mixture of frustration, sadness, knowing. Listens to them argue about who is the greatest. Reminds them that not only are they not supposed to be concerned about who's the greatest, but that they're all going to fail and fail miserably by the end of the night. And he cheers them, hears them just chime in one by one. Not me. Not me. And he knows. He knows all of it. And while that kind of closes our narrative here in Matthew, I want you to turn with me briefly to Luke chapter 22. Because I want to turn to that parallel passage because it does give us a little bit of a different perspective on what's happening. The fact is there's more going on here than the disciples can simply see and hear. Luke 22 is the parallel account to Matthew 26. Same scene, different perspective, different details. Um, Again, not because the gospel writers can't figure out what to include or not because they can't get their story straight, but because they write what they write for a reason. They write to a particular audience. They write to convey certain themes and certain arguments. They all arrange it in a very specific way. But if you're in Luke 22, as you look down to verse 24, you see that dispute that arises among them as to which which is the greatest. In verse 25, we see that correction that Jesus gives them. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. The leader is one who serves. For who's greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. I am the greatest, and yet here I am among you, defined as the one who serves. And then in verse 28, 
through 30, he goes on to remind them of the kingdom, and not only the promise of a kingdom, but he reminds them of their specific place in this kingdom. They have this great exalted promise of where they are going to be in the kingdom. They don't need to argue about who's the greatest, not because they're great, but because he has already made them great promises as to where they are going to fit into his eternal kingdom when it comes. But then look at verse 31. This is where the narrative kind of overlaps with what we see in Matthew. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Simon, Simon. That's his old name. We know him as Peter. Peter means rock, stone. But Simon is his old name, and quite frankly, he's acting quite a bit like his old self at the moment. Simon, something is happening behind the scenes here. Satan has demanded to have you so that he might sift you like wheat. Now, an interesting thing here, at least it's interesting to me. The you there is plural. Satan has demanded to have you. Not just you, Peter, but all of you. Why? Because they're going to be given a great commission. A task of preaching the gospel. A task of taking this gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Jesus is going to build his church. That is his promise that rests on his ability. But he's going to give these men a unique role in the building of that church. They are the ones that are going to go out and proclaim the gospel. They are the ones that are going to write scripture that is going to guide and encourage the church. They're going to do marvelous, miraculous things that validate that message. And he says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. After you do all your threshing on the threshing floor, you gather up all of that stuff and you have good and bad. And to separate it, you put it in a sieve and you shake it. And all the good stuff remains and the bad stuff can be discarded. Satan looks at these guys and he says, this is who you're going to build the church with, huh? Give it to me for a couple rounds. Let's see what's left. Every time that they've been tested in the Gospels, what have we seen? They prove to be very, very human, don't they? They doubt. They're afraid. They fall away. Satan says, let me have them. We'll see what becomes of this promise. But look at what Jesus says in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. They're going to fall away. And he knows that. Do you ever wonder what it is that makes their failure temporary and Judas's eternal? What's the difference between their response, their rejection, and Judas's? Is it their own strength? Well, of course not. <laughs> they don't have any. Is it their own will? It can't be. They all wind up fleeing. Is it because they don't do anything that's really that bad? Well, back in Matthew 10, 33, Jesus said, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. That sounds pretty serious. And that sounds exactly like what Peter's about to do later on in this chapter. So how is it that these men are not lost completely? It's because the security in their salvation, the security in Peter's salvation, never rested on their ability to remain faithful. It was always grounded in who called them in the first place. 
I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You will fail, but your faith is not going to be found to be worthless. Why? Because I will restore you. Love that. He says, and then what? And when you're restored, you're going to use that to strengthen others. Do you ever just marvel at the change in these men between the gospel accounts and what we see in their actions in the book of Acts, what we see in their writings? you ever wonder how it is that Peter goes from, I am the greatest of the disciples, they are all failures, or at least I can see that happening, but not me, to the point where he's writing in 1 Peter chapter 5 and he's talking about being an elder, a, a serious position of responsibility in the church. And Peter certainly would have had an authority in the church as one who walked with Christ and one who was... Uh, in that close group of disciples. And yet in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. That shocks me. Not as Peter, the super elder, but as a fellow elder, a shepherd, just like you. He says, And a witness to the sufferings of Christ, a partaker of the glory that's to be revealed. I exhort you to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. You younger men also, be subject to your elders. All of you, Peter writes, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that He might exalt you at the proper time. And cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. How do you go from Matthew 26, Peter, to 1 Peter, Peter? (laughs) That's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's what God does to His people. That makes all the difference in their lives. It takes these men from cowards who run at the first sign of trouble, and it was serious trouble. It takes them from men who will all flee before this night is over. It takes them from these men who wouldn't dare be identified with Christ as he goes to the cross to to men who leave a prison beaten and bloody and rejoice at the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer in the name of Christ willing, ready, and passionate about going right back into the ministry that got them wounded in the first place. It's only a work of God that produces that kind of faith in their lives, that kind of response in their life, and quite frankly, any kind of response in our lives either. Uh, This is a passage full of pride. Their pride is easy to see, but it leads us to evaluating not only their pride, but ours, because the point of this passage is pretty straightforward. Those silly disciples, just too proud, too arrogant, even though they had every bit of evidence to the contrary, they should have seen, they should have known, but they didn't. They should have been more careful, but they weren't. How gracious and how kind of Jesus to welcome them back, to continue to use them, even though they failed like that. But by now you can probably guess that we can't just leave it there. Because spiritual pride and theological arrogance, being convinced that we cannot fail or won't continue to fail, isn't just a characteristic of those disciples. It's absolutely characteristic of us. There's not one of us here who doesn't struggle with pride. 
uh, my guess is there's not one of us here who couldn't at one point or another see ourselves very easily as standing where Peter has stood. How many of us have made a promise to a loved one never to hurt them again like we have, never to say those cruel words, never to fail to keep our word? How many of us have made promise after promise to God, well, I'll do better. I won't do that again. Just give me another chance. Just give me another day. Just give me another opportunity. This passage hurts us like not many others in Matthew have because it's very easy to see ourselves there. Very easy to see myself standing in the place of Peter. Lord, I know I messed up, but I'm not going to do it again. Lord, trust me, I'm going to do better next time. And how easy it is, because how often it happens that you wind up (laughs) figuratively, maybe literally as Peter, weeping when your failure is exposed. The rooster crows and your failure is right there in front of you and you're laid bare and without excuse. Once again, we come to that place where we are completely and totally dependent on his grace. So what do we do with this? Uh, How do we think through pride in a way that makes it so that we can evaluate this throughout the week? Well, first of all, I think we need to be convinced of the danger of pride. If pride is the problem, why is it a problem? I mean, we know that the Bible says that pride is bad. Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Okay, that's pretty clear. But why? Why is pride such a problem? First of all, uh, pride is a problem because it actually nullifies It makes powerless the gospel. Pride and a right understanding of the gospel are mutually exclusive. Why? Because the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ says you can do nothing. The gospel says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead men don't get better. The gospel says you were a slave to your sin. Slaves don't decide to free themselves. The gospel says you are unrighteous, You are unworthy and you stood rightly condemned by a holy God who takes no part and no presence in sin. But God in his mercy and grace made a way that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That by grace we have been saved and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. The gospel reminds us that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made salvation necessary in the first place. The gospel reminds us that this is all of God. That it is His calling, that it is His kindness, that it is His mercy, that it is His sacrifice, that it is His power that keeps us through all of that. The gospel and pride cannot coexist. Why else is it dangerous? It's dangerous because pride completely blinds us to our own weakness. Pride, spiritual pride, tells me that I would never, that I could never possibly do fill in the blank. And the reality is that our sinful flesh is capable of the most despicable act that we can imagine and probably worse. So pride is so deadly dangerous because to the non-believer, it is a block that that stops the gospel 
Not that the power of the gospel can't penetrate that, but pride is what ultimately nullifies that gospel message. And to the believer, it is so deadly dangerous because it is such a blinding agent in our lives that prevents us from living in humility and dependence on God. Second thing, how do we get there? I think we need to be aware of the pathway to pride, the path that pride often takes. We know that it's dangerous. We know that it's deadly. So why is it that we so often struggle with it? Well, what's interesting, I think that this passage that we went over today kind of follows a very predictable and familiar path that we can all probably relate to. Pride starts with an inflated view of self. That should be obvious, with it, but it's not. I mean, in the context, what are the disciples doing? Arguing about who is the greatest. Their minds are focused on who they are, what they bring to the table, and why that was better than anybody else. Spiritual pride begins the moment that I see myself as something more than I am. And that first step of an inflated view of self leads to the second step of minimizing my weaknesses. What did Peter say? Others might fall, but not not me. I'm not like them. I'm not perfect, (laughs) but I'm not like that. They might all fall, but not me. I'm different. I'm stronger. What are some ways that we do that? Other people can't watch that. I can. It won't affect me. Maybe other people can't listen to that kind of music. I can, and it won't affect me. Maybe other people can't go out to lunch with their coworkers of the opposite sex, but I can. Nothing would ever possibly happen with me. Other people might need the church, not me. How quickly we forget the reality that Jeremiah 17.9 tells us. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The world around you says, follow your heart. Trust your heart. Your heart will guide you. Your heart will lead you. Forget that our hearts are liars. You realize that the worst liar you know is you? And the one you lie to the most often is also you? My heart tells me that I can love who and what I want to love and convinces me that it's virtuous. My heart tells me that I can hate and reject what I want to hate and reject and call it discernment. My heart tells me that I can pursue whatever I want to pursue and that's just fulfillment. Don't trust your heart. It's not meant to be trusted. It's desperately sick. Who can know it? By the way, the answer to that is, I, the Lord, search the heart. And finally, that final step, spiritual pride refuses correction. Jesus says, no, Peter, you are going to fail. You are going to fail spectacularly, and you are going to fail specifically. And what does Peter say? You're wrong. Even if I have to die with you, I will not forsake you. And can we just ask the uncomfortable question, 
of what it was like the last time someone confronted you or I in our sin? What was our response? No, you're wrong. You misread the situation. You misunderstood me. You're overreacting. Who are you to talk to me when your life looks like this? Don't you know that there are other people that are so much worse than I am? How can you bring this to me? I'll do better. I'll change. I'll be different. Just get off my back and let me be. As uncomfortable as it is, I think that not many of us come out clean on the other side of that question. So what's the hope? (laughs) If pride is so destructive and if that path is so very easy to fall into, what is the cure for spiritual pride? How is there any hope in having victory over any of this? I mean, it's obvious there is. The disciples managed to work through this, not and become perfect, but they managed to overcome some of these things. They managed to experience change. We know that the Holy Spirit is at the root of it. But I think if you're still in Luke 22, or if you've gone back to Matthew 26, he mentions it. When they're in the garden, and when they're praying, Jesus says to pray and watch. I think those are two really good steps to start with. Watch and pray. First of all, keep watching, keep alert, keep vigilant. Sleeping soldiers are easy to kill, as it turns out. You can't sleep and hope to win the battle against sin and temptation. Hebrews chapter 2, a book with warnings that come in various times and they increase in uh, their intensity And the first warning in Hebrews is don't drift. There is no such thing as drifting or as coasting along in spiritual neutrality. There's the maturing believer and there's the believer who is drifting. That is simply what our hearts do. So keep watchful, keep awake. Be on the alert. Continually examine yourself with regard to sin and temptation. And two, pray. When we recognize that our hearts are weak and sick and deceitful, then we understand that we need help. And we go to God in prayer as the one who actually has the power to help us. I read from Psalm 19 at the beginning of service. And again, I love that psalm. It is one of my favorites, if you're allowed to have favorites. But Psalm 19, those closing verses are so powerful. Because not only does it acknowledge the beauty and the value of God's word, But as he closes, David says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. There's within that prayer the recognition of, Lord, I am so blinded that sometimes I don't even know it. Do you ever pray that way? Have you ever prayed, Lord, show me those areas of my life that I have willingly covered over and become blind to my own sin? Lord, will you dig those up and will you expose those? Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Lord, I know that most of my sins aren't those hidden ones that I'm not aware of. Lord, I know that I don't only walk, I run towards sin many times. Lord, keep me back from those things. Don't let them have dominion over me. I recognize, Lord, that my sin is prone not only to ensnare me, but then to rule over me. Lord, when you do that, when you keep me back from those blinded, 
things. When you keep me back from those overt things, then I'll be blameless. Then I'll be innocent of great transgression. Lord, if you'll help me deal with the secret sins that I don't see and with those blatant sins that I continually move toward, Lord, then I'll be innocent. And then that closing prayer, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, help every bit of me, everything that comes out and everything that I choose to keep hidden be acceptable to you because, Lord, you evaluate both. The world around us can judge the intentions of our words, the thoughts that we express, but the Lord can discern the very thoughts and intentions and motivations of our hearts. I'm going to add one more, not to add to what Jesus says, but if you want to overcome pride, Use the body that God has placed you in. One of the great tragedies of the Western church is that we are content with a surface level of relationship to one another. That we take from the church what is comfortable for us and refuse to move anything beyond that. We say that we want relationships and that is good. We'll talk about maybe some doctrinal things, some theological things, and that's good. We say that we will pray for one another, and by the way, that is also good. But we're called to so much more. Late last year, we were going through the one another's in one of our Sunday school classes. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another, And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I'd ask this and leave it for you to answer in the quiet of your heart. When was the last time you confessed your sins to another? Not when was the last time you got caught in your sins and had nowhere to go. Those are easy. When was the last time you intentionally brought a weakness before brothers and sisters in Christ so that they might help you bear it. After all, isn't that what we're called to do? Galatians 6, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. How can we do that if we refuse to admit that we even have burdens in the first place? If we're so busy maintaining this veneer of being a good pastor, a good husband, a good wife, a good parent, a good whatever you might categorize yourself as, if we are content to have people see us in our strength, how are we ever going to actually do the real work of strengthening our weaknesses? That is why God has placed us here. Because we all know, don't we? Can we honestly look one to another and say that we really think that any of these people are perfect? Does anybody honestly think that if anybody examined our life for any length of time that we would come out as perfect? No, but for some reason, we desperately cling to this vision that we want people to have of us that we are somehow good enough. We would never say that. It doesn't fit our theology, and yet it fits our practice so well. Do we want to be a church that actually destroys the pride that threatens any effective ministry? 
Because I cannot do effective ministry on my own strength, and neither can you. We were not designed for it. If we actually recognize this as a root that needs to be dug up and burned, then we had better be willing to be seen for who we are. As weak. As in need of mercy. But then people will know. And they won't respond right. And they'll talk. And I wish the answer to that was no, they won't. But they will. Confessing your sin comes with the very real possibility of being burned by that. It doesn't change the commandment. Because I can promise you in this body there are people that will come alongside you in grace and humility, not in perfection, but in grace and humility and will help you walk in the areas where you are weak. And by the way, who would welcome you doing that in their life as well. But we can't preach our way to that until our hearts are broken over our own pride. We'll just continue to pretend that everything's all right and we'll wonder why this church is never as effective as it possibly could be. Let's pray. Lord, it's not Peter who needed to hear this today. It's us. It's me. God, I'm so quick to stand on my own strength. I'm so quick to say if it needs to be done, I can do it. God, forgive us of our pride that creeps in so easily. God, will you convict us of the fact that we have tried to do your work on our own strength? God, will you draw us together as a body that trusts one another enough to share our weaknesses and our burdens? Lord, will you make us faithful to minister well to one another? Make us kind. Make us humble. Make us compassionate because we are not on our own. Lord, as we bear one another's burdens, may it bring a strength that we have not known before. As we minister to one another in our weakness, may it exalt you and your glory and your strength in a way that we have not seen before. Lord, will you make us humble enough to lift you high so that the world around us sees an exalted Christ, a Savior and coming King who is worthy to be praised, not a church that is worthy to be joined, but a body of believers who are so compelling in their love for one another and ultimately their love for you that our gospel message comes forth with a power that comes only from you. Lord, will you save people in our city this, Lord, this week, this month, over this summer while we're together, will you bring fruit, make us faithful to preach the gospel in power and in clarity and in all humility. Lord, change us and forgive us for trying to change ourselves. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.